All right, we're going to go ahead and open in prayer. Lord, we just thank for this evening. We thank you for each person that's here. We ask you to bless this time as we open the word and examine it. We thank you for this in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, Ezekiel chapter 33. Starting at verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people, and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if your people of the land take a man of their coast, and set him for their watchmen, if when he sees the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the trump sound of the trumpet, and takes not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning. His blood shall be upon him, but he that takes warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and then take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will be required of the, at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have set you as a watchman upon the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear the word of my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die. If you do not speak the, to warn the wicked from his way, the wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if, if you warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, and if he turn not from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, and you have delivered your soul. Therefore, you, o, o you son of man, speak unto the house of Israel, Thus you speak, saying, If your transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? I'm going to stop there, because I'm not sure we'll get past even what I've read. <laughs> this one starts out with uh, the whole idea of the watchman on the, on the wall, which people have done many messages on, and uh, this is one of the most popular messages of Ezekiel that I've heard out there that, for people to preach on. But he starts out with the practical example. He says, when I bring evil on the land and you pick somebody to be the watchman, it's his job to watch, basically what he says. His job is to warn the people of an attack. And this is, he's referring them to a practice that happened at that time. At night, you would put people on usually at least every corner of the, of the walls of the city and usually you had one or two that wandered the walls all night long, and their job was to look for an enemy attack and sound the, sound the alarm. So he says, you know, when I bring this evil on you and you have a watchman, it's his job. When he sees the attack, he is to blow the trumpet. All right, and this is something that's very real to them. They, they know this mentality. And in many ancient cities, they had large trumpets that were put into, into the, actually built into the towers that when they would blow them, it would wake everybody up. So in, in, in here, does, does you tra we're translating the word sword to evil? Evil, well, and specifically sword is an attack. But, but you, used, you said evil twice, right? Did I? Okay. Well, I'm still, I'm kind of thinking ahead to when he's talking to, talking to Ezekiel, but yeah, when, when, when attacks hit this, when, it, it, people, it, the, the uh, watchman would say, you know, sound the alarm and, and let them know that something was happening. And then the people, of course, if they heard the alarm, it was up to them to get up and defend themselves and, and in many cases go to the wall to defend the city. 
And, uh, but it was his job. He was not to sleep on the job. He was not to uh, do anything but watch. You know, we would almost say they were the night watchmen. <laughs> they were to keep guard over, the, over everything. And he says, if, the, if he sees the sword come upon the land and he blows the trumpet to warn the people, then whosoever hears the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet, and takes not the warning of the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. In other words, if you didn't get up out of bed because of the sound of the trumpet, it was your fault. And this is the mentality that God has in many, many times in our life. If, if you don't heed his warnings, he goes, you're getting what you wanted. You're getting what you deserve because you did not heed the warning. And that's what he's going to later on tell Ezekiel, that his, he is the watchman on the wall to, to give the announcements. And, you know, this is something that you wonder sometimes you, when we tell people that trouble's coming, that there's bad things on the, on the horizon, and you watch people just kind of numb and just lay around doing nothing. And, you know, it is kind of an interesting thing. You know, at the prison, we oftentimes have all these uh, drills. And sometimes they have so many drills, it's ridiculous. You're going, okay, this is the sixth drill today. You know, what, you know, what if something was really to happen? People are so used to the drills that nobody's going to do anything. And I think there is a point where you can do too many drills. <laughs> and people start getting kind of numb to the idea that, you know, everything is a drill, everything's a drill. Uh, and he's saying, you know, if people get to that place where they just don't, you know, they ignore it. Yeah, I'm huh? Oh, on 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 we okay yeah, well, we kind of don't I don't care an attitude of I don't care, <laughs> or I, nothing's real, nothing's real, and you know this is the way our world is right now they they don't heed any warnings that come their way because it's they just don't believe anything is real anymore they don't believe any that there's a judgment that's coming, and this is part of what's happened in our in our world is is. We get further and further into sin and evil, and it's not judged instantly. People start saying, well, there is no judgment. And that's what happened to in Noah's day. It's what happened into the, in the days of the judges when they kept getting corrected. It's what happens you know, during when Assyria conquered the, southern, the northern kingdom and when Babylon conquered the, the southern kingdom and when both of those, con- you know, Assyria and Babylon both were conquered because of their evils. You know, there gets to be that point where because God is patience, uh, because of God's patience, people sometimes will get, well, God allows anything. And we hear that a lot from people when you witness, well, n- no, nothing ever happens to the bad. And it makes it kind of difficult sometimes, but, you know, we can look at history and say God eventually runs out of patience. But, you know, we've got to be very careful about this. And Psalms is full of that as well. You know, it started out, David said, why did, why did the heathen rage? And why do people say, you know, there is no justice? Because he recognized the fact that because God is so patient, people often will say there is no justice, especially the righteous. The righteous that are obeying God saying, you know, these guys look like they're getting away with everything. God, what's, what's, what gives here? If I, and we hear it, you know, we're his children. We do something wrong and we get, we get spanked and the, and the world seems like they're getting away with what they're, everything they're doing. Yeah, until eternity. Well, until eternity comes. And, yeah. But even, even having said that, the fact that they have no spiritual discernment may mean that they're getting plenty of judgment but not recognizing that it's judgment. Yeah. The, the whole fact that they don't have peace so often in what they're doing is a judgment, but they don't recognize it as judgment. 
They just recognize, you know, they just think it's normal or whatever it might be that they're, they're at. And they're seeking hard to find that peace and find that satisfaction and can't find it and don't recognize that it's a spiritual uh, discipline that they're, that they're needing. And we as Christians and as children recognize it a lot faster, hopefully, <laughs> that, that we're being disciplined so that we will turn to him. But ultimately, God's day of reckoning is, is ultimately at the white throne judgment. Any time in between, you might, you might see that you've been judged, but the ultimate is the white throne judgment when he says, you rejected my son, you're now rejected. And we've got to keep that in mind. And we've said this before, you know, if the farmer was to try to keep his books before the harvest, he would think he was a loser all the way through. You, know, you spend all this time, first you buy the land, and then you disc the land, and then you, you know, fertilize the land, and then you finally plant the seeds, and then you keep uh, the weeds out of it. And you spend a lot of money as a farmer trying to raise a crop. And if you were to try to balance your books before you actually harvest the crop, you're going to look like an utter failure. And that's what God is basically saying. His, his day of judgment is not till the very end. When all is done, and he goes, this is what we're, where we're at. So there's something to the, to the cliche, you know, enters in the end. Oh, yeah. Exactly, because that's when, the, that's when God does his reckoning. God hasn't reckoned and closed the books until he closes the books. And when he closes the books, there's no chance to change your mind. When somebody's standing at the white throne judgment realizing they made the wrong decision, it's too late. They don't have a chance to, to change their mind. Uh, the, the story of Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man's in hell looking up and seeing Lazarus in ease and comforting goes, uh, God, can you just, you know, and even there he had arrogance. Can you send Lazarus to give me some water? You know, he still had arrogance even in hell, which kind of is an interesting thing to look at. You would think that he would have been broken in hell and ready to do, you know, promise anything, and yet he's saying, well, you know, I, that guy was the, the, the beggar, you know, when, when he were alive. We just send him down here with some water. Well, there's some people that are going to go to hell that aren't arrogant either, that, that just won't bend their knee to God. Well, there's a lot of them that are arrogant, but you know, the point I'm making here is there are a lot of people that we consider good people that are going to go to hell because they've rejected Jesus Christ. And this is something, they're, they're going to be the ones we look at and say, well, what are they doing now? They don't belong there. Because, you know, they were good. They, they would give you the shirt off their back. You know, they would give you anything you needed. You know, they did lots of good things. Why are they in hell? Well, they rejected Jesus Christ. And consequently, you know, and then we're going to see people in heaven, like the, the most arrogant people in the world, but they at least turn their life over to God at some point, and, and they're in heaven, and you're going, what are you doing here? Uh, probably we won't say that in heaven, but you know, from our perspective here, it would be, what is this person doing here? But when we're there, we'll finally realize how much grace we also got to be there. But uh, this whole idea that there's a guard that is supposed to watch the walls, and he's supposed to sound the, the trumpet. And if he sounds the trumpet, individual's death was on their head. You, know, you, didn't, you did not respond. It's, your, it's on your head. And he says, if he didn't blow the horn, or didn't blow the trumpet, and the people were not warned, and the sword come, and they're he is taken in his iniquity, but his blood is on the watchman. The watchman who doesn't blow the, blow the trumpet is guilty of all the deaths of the people 
that are inside the city. Is there a practical application for that in our in our lifetimes? We're going to get to that's what that's what God tells uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel is told that he is the watchman on the wall, which we read part of, and if he speaks out in the truth, it's on their head. The idea on this is Ezekiel has been given an example of a practical thing that everybody would understand. You know, what he's saying is that these people know what a watchman on the wall does. And for our purpose, he didn't just say the watchman of the wall is responsible. He actually spreads it out. And I love the way God did some of this. We've talked about this at various points. God puts a lot of information in the book to help those of us living in the 21st century to understand what was going on then. Because up there, he could have said the, the watchman of the wall is responsible to sound the horn to warn people, or, or he's guilty of, of their blood. And if he sounds it, it and they would go, okay, yeah, we understand that. We know what a watchman is. But we go into a long eight or nine verses here to tell us what a watchman was supposed to do and what his responsibilities were. And a couple months ago, we were talking about the tire and, and those places. And he gave this long description of tire, if you remember, which was totally irrelevant to the people of their day. In his day, they all knew what Tyre was and how important it was. But in our day, we don't, we don't know how that Tyre was the, the wealth place of, the, of their day and all of that. So God put in all these extra details that were not needed to the people. And you could picture them reading, a, okay, Ezekiel, why do you keep talking about this watchman on the wall? Why do you keep talking about Tyre? We all know, we all know what it is that you're talking about. Why are you putting so much detail into it? Well, God put it, had him put this kind of detail in it so that we in the 21st century would read it and say, oh, okay, I don't have to know history to know all of this. He's going to tell me exactly what, what happened. And, uh, and then in verse 7, it's going back to what we were saying. So you, son of man, I have set you as a watchman on the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear the word of my mouth and warn them for me. And I do believe that this is not just Ezekiel who was given this warning. And I know for sure that it's pastors, because he's going to tell us. Uh, but I also believe it's all the followers of God are responsible to tell people what's coming. Give them the warning that destruction is coming. Even in our day, even in Ezekiel's day when nobody believed him. Because remember, who is Ezekiel's audience? Ezekiel is in Babylon, so he's got the captives. who are still struggling with the fact that they're captives and have not really acknowledged that they're there because God told them they would be there because of their disobedience. Because he's talking to a bunch of people that worshiped idols and, and did not obey God with their whole heart. And so he's talking to a very disobedient group of people. They're starting, some of them, to recognize that they deserve what they've gotten, but most of them don't. And he's saying, you are to speak the words that I give you. And, you know, we as Christians probably have a lot of blood on our hands if we're not sharing the gospel with those that God has shared it, told us to share with. Because that's what, that's what uh, in verse 8 it says, When, when, you, when I say unto the wicked, o, o wicked man, you shall surely die if you do not speak and warn the wicked of his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at your hand. And what does that mean? I'm not quite sure exactly what that means as far as the punishment goes, but we will be held in, in accountability for people who die in their sins if we don't speak. Uh, and this is what I've said, you know, I can picture... I don't know if you 
won't keep us out of heaven, but they will mean loss of rewards. What I have said, and I heard this message long ago at the white throne judgment, I can picture as the message that I heard, people looking around at the believers that are not being judged and say, why didn't you tell me as they're headed to hell? Uh, and this is a scary thought. If, it, if that's true, we have our glorified bodies and God, after the white throne judgment, wipe every tear out of our eyes and all of that. But, you know, there could be just that where people look around and say, you knew this was coming and didn't share. You're not responsible for anything they do, but you're responsible for sharing the gospel message uh, to the people you meet, to the people you come across, you know, and listening to God. Does that mean you have to share it with every single person that you know? Probably not, but... But especially fam family and friends and co-workers and people you really get to make any kind of relationship with, to not share with them basically is saying, I hate you enough that I want you to go to, want you to, go to hell. And that's a pretty sad thought process. Because kind of the people that I've come across here, most of the people aren't, aren't really interested in that. Nobody's interested in it. Because we are now saved and God called us and we responded to the call and he lives in us now and we care. But did you really, does most people really care about the gospel message before they finally respond to it? Not particularly, not in my experience. I've had no luck converting I mean, they, yeah. several of my family members. They still don't get it. All you can do is give them the, give them the gospel message and they are responsible for it. You're responsible only to give the message. What they do with it is between them and God. You have done what this says. You have warned them. Therefore, their blood is not on your hands if they should reject it. And as we get further in this, we're going to see Ezekiel's told just a lot, even more fully all that in information. But our job is simply to share. We are to plant the seed, and we go to the parable of the sower of the seeds when they throw the seeds out. You know, some of it lands on the pathway and is immediately eaten by the birds. It doesn't even have a chance to even get into their heads, and we all know people that are that way. You know, it seems like they've heard the gospel, and it doesn't even begin to penetrate their brain. Some of it pops up on the rocky soil and then dries up. Doesn't again, doesn't penetrate. And we see people that give a kind of assent to it, but it really does not change their life. And then we see those that it gets choked out by the weeds, and there's a lot of people like that. Uh, I've met some people, they start out really strong, they look like Christians and they are going gung-ho, and then the world gets after them and they get a little bit of troubles, a little bit of trials and the cares of the world, and they totally abandon God. Now, are they saved or not? From the parable, I would say no, because it said they did not produce fruit. Now, did that individual who has that experience get saved? Only time will tell. That's when you raise your children up in the way of the Lord and they go off the deep end and go do something else. If they, ever, if they were truly saved, they're going to come back. If they weren't and it was just a bunch of games with them, they won't come back. And this is with my oldest son. When he went off the deep end, I knew... I knew from his earlier days that he was saved. Just his reaction with God and everything. So I knew he'd come back. I had no doubt in my mind that he'd come back, and he did. My second, my second son, he never went off the deep end, but he's also not following God. 
and I don't know where he's at. And he's the one that breaks my heart so much because I don't know where he's at. I'd love to see him come back. He was raised up like all the other kids were, so he should come back. And all I can do is pray for him. My wife and I aren't responsible. If he's not saved, we're not responsible for his rejection because he had the message. For the individuals in my family that have heard the message, the people who have told them the message are not responsible for their rejection of the message. We've sounded the alarm. We've sounded the trumpets. And we've done our part. And it doesn't mean that we never will show the trump, you know, sound the trumpet again, but our job has at least been done. We've made the announcement. If they sleep through the trumpet sound, that becomes their problem. Now, God will send other people in their lives, hopefully, to reach them. But the more you reject the gospel message, the harder it is to be reached. And here he's saying, you know, this is all he's saying on here, is that if you don't sound it, then you're guilty for them going to hell, is what it, how we're going to look at this. If you sound it and they reject it, they still go to hell, but you're not responsible for, you're not responsible for that, that because you've done your part. Paul said, I am guilty of no man's blood. This is what he's referring to, this idea. He says, I have sounded the horn to everybody that I, can, that I was supposed to sound it to. Now, I can't make that claim myself. I know that there are people that I should have, should have said things to that I didn't in my lifetime. I cannot do what Paul did, said, you know, that he was not guilty of any man's blood. But this is what he's referring to. He's going back to this principle. He's the watchman on the wall, sounding forth the trumpet and warning people. Don't beat yourself up if you haven't shared the gospel enough, but also don't beat yourself up if people don't respond. More often than not, people are not going to respond to the gospel message. They did a thing on the radio the other day about the percentage and the ages of people that actually get saved. And it's like 10 to 12 is, is the... 10 to 12 is when most people make a profession for Christ. Yeah. It's not unusual for this thing to happen. All of it comes down to how important it is. And I've seen many people have based their entire fact that they're a Christian on the fact that they said a prayer when they were 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. And you see no evidence whatsoever of a relationship with Jesus Christ. I've done children's ministry all my life, and I believe that children can get saved, and I know that I got saved when I was 10, and I got totally changed at 10 years old, so I don't rule out that they get, can get saved at that age. And that's true of a lot of people who go, I mean, this is a scary thing. People who are raised in a church may or may not be saved because it's just part of their life. It's just part of what you do. It's like many of the Jews in Jesus' day and even in Ezekiel's day. They were Jews. They were born a Jew. They went to the temple three times a year to, to fulfill their duty. They gave their tithes. They did everything they were supposed to do. But as Paul would later say, a true Jew is one that's circumcised in the heart, not just circumcised uh, at birth. And this is what's really important. Many people that are raised up in a church, they have two problems. Number one, They've been good. They don't realize that they're a sinner. And they've got to understand sin. And sin is hard for a young person to understand, especially one who is a good, quote unquote, good person. You know, I didn't get into drugs, didn't get into alcohol, I wasn't sleeping around, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. And, and they don't really fully understand sin. 
and they continue going to church, they'll pray, they'll read their Bible, but nothing is real. It's just a bunch of ceremonial activity. Christianity is not following a bunch of rules. It's not trying to be obedient to everything God wants you to do for the sake of obedience. It's coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is why you'll hear myself and many other pastors will say, use this, Christianity is not religion, it's a relationship with Jesus. Because it really is, it's all a relationship. Now my relationship will then move me to be obedient. And my obedience is not to try to please God or make myself look good in his eyes. It's just because I now love him so much that I, I want to do what he wants me to do. It's that truly obedient child who is being obedient to their parents, not because they're gonna spank his butt or put him in the corner or take away the you know, prized possession, but he just wants to be obedient and do what's right. Wants to make, wants to make the parents happy. Wants to, well, wants to please them. I don't know if happy is the right word, please. Please, I think, is the better word. Because I wanna, I wanna please God. I wanna see him smile. You know, I would love to, I picture him smiling when, he, when we're obedient. But not because I'm afraid that he's going to punish me for not doing it, but just because I want to do what he wants. And that's a different attitude than religion. Religion is just follow all these rules and try to please, you know, try to, try to please the God by being obedient. You weren't very good with the rules. You weren't very good with the rules. I, I was, well, I was the oldest child, so in some degree I was, but in another degree I wasn't. <laughs> Try to break it. Yes, I've done that many times in my lifetime. Most people have. That's the, way, that's the flesh. That's the flesh. Give me a rule and let me break it. You know? uh, verse 9, Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked in his way to turn from it, and he does not turn from it, he shall die in his iniquity. And you, But you have delivered your soul, so you're not, you're not guilty of their, them. Then verse 10, Therefore, you, O son of man, speak unto the house of Israel. Thus you speak, saying, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? In other words, if you're speaking to us and we pine, pine is an old word. It means to, to be despondent. Uh, you know, in the 50s or 60s, they used to use pine away a lot when somebody was rejected by their boyfriend or girlfriend. They would pine away. They, they would be so despondent, nothing, you know, life was over. Uh, verse 11, saying to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but, if the, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn you, therefore, from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Therefore, you, son of man, say unto the children of, uh, children of your people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the Wicked, he shall not fail, fall thereby in the day that he turns from his wickedness. Neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sins. When I say, unto, when I say shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live if he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, all of his righteousness shall not be remembered, but his iniquity that he has committed, he shall die for it. Again, I say unto the wicked, you shall surely die if he turn away from his sin and, and do that which is lawful and, and right. If the wicked restore the pledge and give again that he is robbed, walk in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of his sins shall he, 
that he has committed shall be mentioned unto him, and he hath he has done that which is lawful and right. He shall surely live. All right. This gets us into kind of where we're at in today's world. You know, basically he's saying that uh, in verse uh, 12, he says, if somebody's doing right and they do something wrong, their righteousness is not going to protect them from their wrong. And our laws are built on that, on that mentality. You know, how, many, how many people do you have to kill before you're going to be charged with murder? One. It doesn't really matter if you've been a good person all your life, you know, you were, you've lived for 90 years and you go out and purposely murder somebody, you're still a murderer. It doesn't matter that you've been good all your life. And that's what God is saying. He goes, you can be righteous and, and be really righteous, but the one act of sin is going to destroy your righteousness. And you, you will be judged for your righteousness. Paul said it, for the wages of sin, sin singular, is death but the gift of God is eternal life. It only takes one sin for us to be worthy of death. And this is what he's saying here. He goes, you can pile up all the righteousness you want, but if you're going to turn around and get it, you know, live in iniquity, you're guilty. And this is logical, it's common sense, but you know, we've all talked about it. When you go out and witness to people, and you go, well, what does it take to get to heaven? Well, you've got to be good. Well, how good is good? Well, you know, I, I think I've done enough good that I'll, 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 I'll deserve heaven. We hear that all the time. Yeah. We hear that all the time when you talk to people. Well, I'm, I'm more good than bad, so God will accept me. This verse is going into that just against that. No, it's not true. If you are righteous, but you have iniquity, you are guilty. We've got to keep this in mind for people. People have to see themselves the way God sees them. We need to see ourselves that way too, other than the fact that the second half of this part that I read is what's important. If you live in iniquity, and basically he says, and you repent of your sins and try to do what's right for God, then you get the blessing. For us, that means get saved, except Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. When we've done that, he says, okay, you're forgiven. And because as you look at what he says here, you know, if you turn away and you do, then he gives all this long things, you know, you get back what you took and you restore, the, you restore what you stole and all of this, and you, and you live correctly. Now, all of us cannot do that. None of us can do that reality. How do we get saved? We accept Jesus Christ. We repent from our sins, which means to turn away from our sins and turn back to God, and God gives us the strength to start living correctly. And this is what's important for us to understand. Nothing I do is going to earn heaven. Nothing I do is even going to let me live righteously. And I've said this before. We can discipline our flesh. Some people are better at disciplining their flesh than others and make themselves look good. But at some point, the flesh is going to be rebel, will rebel if it's just disciplined. It's like being in the... Uh, lion and tiger cage with the, with the tame, you know, quote-unquote tamed animals that you're trying to tame. They're still wild. And if you gave your back to them too long, they would take advantage of your back being turned, and the flesh does the same thing. Turn away from the flesh for a few minutes, and the flesh will come back with a vengeance, whatever that sin that you're trying to keep, you know, under control. If somebody has a bad temper and they keep their temper in check for a long time, what ends up happening is when they finally do explode, 
they're a volcano exploding. The alcoholic who's, who's trying to be uh, sober on their own strength ends up, when just enough things happen, going back to, a, to as bad or worse than, than they were before they quit. It happens over and over. If we try to discipline our flesh, it comes back with a vengeance when it finally gets a chance to get out of its, off its leash or outside the cage or whatever term you want to use for it, which is why Jesus said, or Paul said in, in Galatians, it has to be crucified. And Jesus said the same thing. Your flesh has to be dead. Our flesh must be dead for it to be totally victorious. And here he's saying, it's got to be dead. It's got to be repented of. It's got to be gone. And he says, then will you be blessed. And this is very critical for us. If we really want to live, it is only through Jesus Christ. And he will take us beyond our flesh. He'll take us beyond our iniquity. Because if our flesh isn't crucified, we're going to want to live in sin. Just an automatic. Even for those of us that are Christian, we still want to, want to live in the sin. And, our, and we may be able to live correctly for a short period of time. And if God has crucified it, it's not as big a deal. But you can all hopefully know areas in your life that have been crucified. They're not even an issue anymore. You know, it's like, okay, I don't even, I'm not even tempted by this. I don't have to discipline the flesh. Because in this area... The flesh is dead. And you can be exposed to it without having a problem. Other areas, you're still struggling and fighting, and I still struggle and fight in certain areas of my life and say, you know, I've got to be very careful. I mean, it's so easy to fall in this area. But it comes down to, are, am I willing to turn from my sin and repent? And that repentance is important. We are to repent of our sin and turn to God and say, God, I am sorry that I have sinned. And then he crucifies it and gives us the strength to go beyond it. But repentance is important. And this is a statement that many of the people who aren't saved, well, God will forgive me. Well, he's ready to forgive you. But if you just plan to keep doing the same sin over and over, then you're not going to be forgiven of that because you're not going to the step of being forgiven. If I, if I say, God, uh, you know I'm just weak in this area. Forgive me. You know, that's not repentance. That's not even asking for forgiveness, really. God, I want to do this again, but you can forgive me this time. God is no different than we are. If somebody said that to us, we're not going to, you know, I'm sorry I stole, stole your bike out of here. You can have it back, but uh, I'm going to do it again. Uh, we're not going to be willing to forgive them. We're probably going to lock the bike up so they don't take it again or keep it in the house or something. But, you know, when, when somebody comes with, to us with that kind of attitude, uh, we're not going to trust them. We're not going to forgive them because they're not really repentant. God's the same way. And too many people go to God and go, God, forgive me. You know, I'm sorry I did this. What they're saying, I'm sorry you caught me and punished me, but uh, I'm going to plan on doing it again. Maybe you won't catch me again next time. You know, saying that to God's kind of weird, but uh, most people do that. And if we repent, none of our sins are counted against us. If we come to Jesus Christ in repentance and he fills us, our sins are gone. And this is the good news for us. Our sins are gone as far as God is concerned. And he clothes us in his righteousness, dresses us up and says, you've got all the blessings of being a child of the king. 
you know, and that is something we've got to get into our mindset. You know, so many people that I meet and talk to don't understand that their sins are gone when they come to Christ. And I've said, met so many of them that are still suffering in the things they've done wrong as a Christian. Well, you know, 30 years ago I did this and I just can't forgive myself because I just don't understand how God could forgive me. Well, God's forgiven us. And we really truly see our sins for what they are. It's easier to forgive ourselves because usually they're thinking of some big sin and, and God says, if you really understood what sin is in my eyes, you don't have to think about just the big things. Because in God's eyes, all sin is sin. You know, and we as humans like to, and we've talked about this many times, you know, we like to try to categorize sins. Okay, we got murder way up on the top. And then we kind of work our way down to, uh, to lying somewhere down you know, at the bottom end of this, you know, especially if it's just a little white lie. Where I, you know, and we have, all, we have it kind of graded down. You know, these, are, these, are, these are sins that they're sins, but they're really not that big a deal. And then there's these really big sins that we shouldn't be doing at all. And God says they're all sin. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where it comes from, that same mentality, but it also came from the Jews. The Jews had this hierarchy that they tried to make it out to. It's part of human nature, isn't it? It's human nature. These are really bad things. These are not so bad things. Uh, so it is human nature. It is human uh, desire to make myself look good. You know, well, you know, I've told a few lies, but you know, I've, I've, never, I've never stolen from somebody or I've never killed somebody, you know, but you know, I do tell lies, but that's, you know, that's not bad compared to, you know, that's the mentality. We, it, it builds into our pride. Joe Blow up here does the same thing, so I do the same thing. It can't be that bad. Everyone else is doing it. Yeah. But, but that's also how we compare ourselves. We don't compare ourselves to God's standards. We compare ourselves to other people and we always pick the people who are worse than us. You know, well, I'm better than this person, this person, this person, and this person. And as I told you, when I'm out at the prison, I can talk to any prisoner and they go, well, I'm a good person. I'm better than most of the people. You know, most of the people you know, maybe. <laughs> but not necessarily the people that I would compare you to if I was comparing you. But that's usually what happens. You, people, by human nature, will always compare themselves to people that are worse than them so if the worst gangster out there is saying, I'm better, I'm better than those other three gangsters across town, you know, because I haven't, I haven't done this or that, you know, the, the, they place the really bad. You know, I haven't cheated my own people like they do. Uh, you know, executed many people, but I haven't cheated my own, my own gang members. You know, it's a, the principle of this is, who are we comparing, what is our comparison stick? Uh, uh, and God's comparison is himself. Are you as righteous as he is? And if you're not as, as righteous as he is, you're guilty and you're going to go to hell. And you know, most people don't want to go to that, you know, that standard. They don't, they don't even want to go to the, good, the people that are better than them. You know, because there's always people better than you are, and we don't want to compare ourselves to them. We always compare ourselves to people that are not as good as we are or at least equal to us so we can see, well, God, I'm just like them. There's not a problem. And that's what we have to do with the lost world is make them realize that God's standard is perfection and that they're probably not as good as they feel that they are. And we as Christians have to keep that in our mind also. We're not, we're not any better than they are other than the fact that we have Jesus Christ in us and that's why we're going to heaven because if we start looking at our lives, 
We all still do the same sins they're doing. Everywhere you go, the idea that I'm a good person builds into the, the pride of my flesh. My pride wants to say I deserve better treatment. I deserve to heaven because I am such a good person compared to all these other people. Well, that's what I've been working on is uh, I've noticed it so much from people is that I, I, uh, I don't often come back right away with, well, how, how do you know, or uh, using that phrase where I challenge them and then they have to tell me uh, their belief and everything, then you got your foot in the door. Another phrase you could always use, the, the other phrase you can always use is how good is good enough. You're, you're a good person, how good is good enough to please God? Especially if you want you on that. You know, how good is good enough to please God? Can I ask you a couple questions by God's standards and see how you, you know. Anything you want to do to get them to think about the fact that their standard isn't high enough. Well, I didn't believe it until I actually started hearing it. Everyone thinks that way. And it's what people want to believe. It, it, fits the, it fits the pride of, well, I'm better than most people, and everybody thinks they're better than most people. Uh, because nobody wants to think, well, I'm an I'm a awful, terrible, evil person. Even your bad guys don't think that way. The guys that we would consider bad don't think that way in general. There are a handful that know that they're really bad, but most of them don't think they're all that bad. They're just... Living, living, living their life, and every once in a while they make a mistake. Is God reminding you, or is Satan reminding you? That's Either one. Satan is Satan is trying to do it to condemn you. God, God would be reminding you to bring conviction so you'll confess it and move forward. Now the big difference between a, con, a conviction will lead you to repentance, con, condemnation will lead you to to utter failure. You'll hide away and say, God, I don't deserve you. And the big difference between it, God is not going to condemn you because there is no condemnation in God because he paid the price. Satan tries to remind us so that we'll get condemned and, and reject God. And over the years, I've seen this, when people wallow in their sins, they end up pulling away from the church. At the very time you should be drawing closer to the church and the people and the, and the Bible and God, condemnation draw, pushes you away from what you need. And then those people will go wallow in their sins for sometimes decades before they finally come back to God. And it's sad to see, but it happens all the time. You watch somebody who comes to church all the time. They're reading their Bible. They're excited about God, and they start getting less and less excited about God. They're probably not reading their Bible at all, and they start missing church a lot. <laughs> yeah. They just don't work on the issues the right godly way, unfortunately. The problem with our world today is everybody's a victim. Instead of saying, I made my own choices and I did something and God, I'm going to put it at your feet and accept your forgiveness. Whenever you're a victim, it gives you an excuse to not take responsibility. And that's when all these things are coming up and we've talked about this, how Satan is working to have all sins defined as sicknesses and illnesses because who you can't be responsible if you're ill you're not a drunk you're an alcoholic and that just means that you have a, a sickness called alcoholism and you just can't help yourself a new world order is depending on one of these as the elements for change because i've heard it well i'm an alcoholic you can't condemn me for my drinking just because because i am sick you wouldn't you wouldn't condemn, you wouldn't you know condemn somebody with a that had the flu and i've heard that more than once uh, i'm an alcoholic I, I i have a sickness you know, and this is the problem. Anything that God says is sin is starting to be redefined. 
You're not a thief, you're a kleptomaniac. I just can't help myself. I see something and I, and I want it and I just take it and I really didn't realize I was, that I was doing wrong when I took it, because I'm sick. And this is what happens in this. And the next step from sickness is to make it normal. Because that, that was the progression for our homosexuality. Homosexuality was a, was a sin, became a sickness, and now it is normal. And now we're the one that's sick if we want to say that they have a problem with it. But, you know, we need to be able to understand we are responsible for our act actions. Our kids are responsible. And this is hard for adults and of, of, uh, parents of kids, especially adult kids. Our children are responsible for their actions. You know, and too many times as parents, we get all bent out of shape that our kids don't follow the way that we raise them or and we'll start blaming ourselves and saying, we did all these wrong things. Well, the one thing I want to encourage all parents, and I went through this when my son went off the deep end, we did the best we could, the best we were able to at whatever level we were at as we were raising them. Could we have done better? Obviously, we're humans. We could always do better than anything that we do. But we're not responsible for their reactions on it. And we need to be very careful not to get bitter when our kids aren't aren't doing what we want them to do or what we hope they will do and all of that. We're not responsible for their actions. If we were responsible for actions, God is a terrible parent because he's got all kinds of bad kids. You know, and think about that. You know, God has all these kids that are disobedient. Adam and Eve, his first direct kids, sinned and brought disobedience on the whole world. He was not responsible for their actions. And he kicked them out of the house. And he kicked them out of the house. <laughs> And then made the payment so that they could come back. Uh, you know, so we need to keep in mind, if our kids go the wrong way, it's not our fault completely. Now, could we have done a better job? Obviously, every one of us could have done a better job. But we can't condemn ourselves for their, their reactions to turn away from God if they turn away from God. Same thing, we can't blame our parents for the way we Right, we can't blame our parents. I can't allow myself to be a victim. I made choices. I'm responsible for my choices. Was I in a bad place when I made that choice? Maybe, maybe not. But it's still, could I have had a better upraising up to do a better decision? Maybe, but still, I still made my decisions to do what I did. And as I've said before, when I got saved at 10 years old, nobody in my family went to church. Nobody. But nobody prayed, nobody read the Bible, nobody wanted to go to church, nobody cared about God. And I got saved in that environment. So it doesn't matter what your parents do or what we've done to our kids, they're responsible for their decisions. And all we can do is pray for our kids when they're not following the right, right direction. And even if you did everything right and raised your kids by being in church all the time, that's still not even a guarantee that they're gonna follow God. I've got one of those. It's not following God. Is he saved or not? I don't know. Only he and God know that. If he's saved, he's going to come around sometime when God brings him down to the, to the bottom of the barrel somehow. If he's not saved, God will still bring him down to the bottom of the barrel and try to get hold of, his, get hold of him. Whichever the case is, it's between him and God. We did the best we could. Was I a perfect dad? Absolutely not. I had a big problem, especially the first 12 years of my, kid, of my marriage when I was a workaholic and never at home. We all make mistakes, and we can always blame people for all of our problems, but when we do that, we're living as a victim and not in victory. Well, when you finally turn to God and you let him crucify everything and get over, over trying to blame others, 
It is freeing. Most of us don't want to blame ourselves because that means we have to be responsible for our own life. And the flesh doesn't like to be responsible. We recognize that we are responsible for our own decisions. We turn to God and he frees us and truly frees us. Just finding out who's to blame does not free us because now we have a new problem. How do I forgive that person that hurt me so bad and made me a victim all my life? So now we go from one problem to another problem. And without God, you're not going to be very forgiving. There's it, not really true forgiveness without God. Because most people won't release their anger and bitterness toward people. Even with God in your life, it's hard to forgive people correctly. Because forgiving is that statement we have on the PowerPoint. That I am not even going to think evil of those people. I'm not going to speak evil of those people. And how hard is it? If you haven't forgiven somebody, you know what it's like. Every time, you, every time they come to your mind, there's this bitterness in your heart toward them. You may or may not speak about it, but there's this bitterness in your heart every time you think about this person. Well, the good news is when you've really forgiven them, you can end up loving them and not, not being bitter toward them. What's the best answer for someone that if they was to come back and say, uh, what are you free from? Truth will set you free. Technically everything. Mostly guilt, mostly anguish, uh, the freedom of living a, a truly free life. Uh, I'm free from the law, I'm free from the guilt, I'm free from, you know, I've been set at liberty, which means I have the, the right to do what I want, but yet I don't always do what I want because I know that I'm trying also to be a good witness to people. And this is the great news about being a Christian. I am truly free, as Paul said, to do whatever I want because I have the righteousness of Christ. But because God lives in me, my wants get changed to his wants, and I start living like him. And I really am then free. I'm free from the guilt of doing wrong. I'm free from the desires of the flesh. I'm free from seeking to do my own, my own will and living to be like him. And this is the great news. As he comes in and dwells in me, he crucifies my flesh, and he starts pouring out of me. Or as we've said in the past, you know, he, he is that pickling area where we get changed into the, into the Holy Spirit. We're baptized in the Holy Spirit and he fills us so much that there, stops, there starts to be less and less difference between the two of us. Now we will never in this world get to be to the point where we are like him until we're glorified. But ultimately that should be our goal. And ultimately if we let him crucify more and more of us, you start seeing it in certain areas of your life. You become more loving, more forgiving, more more obedient, more truthful, less desire to, to do the things of the world. And it's not because I'm trying to discipline my flesh. It's just he is changing who I am. And you start thinking different. And the great news is when you finally start thinking like God on certain situations, somebody, somebody says, will you forgive me? And you've already forgiven them because God has already forgiven us before we ask for forgiveness. Yeah. And... This is a great place when you start, you just love the person even before they're asking for it. You forgive them before they ask for it. You're giving grace to them before they've asked for it. Why? Because you're starting to be like God toward other people. It takes a long time sometimes. It takes a lot of, a lot of God changing you. It takes a lot of putting you through high school and university level testing. <laughs> you know, let me put somebody in here your life that's hard to love or hard to, hard to forgive and see how you, how you can do it. And when you find yourself in those positions, just go, okay, God, help me get through this test. 
crucify this area of my life. The whole point on this is that we become more like God. And hopefully you're starting to see that developing in your life where it's easier to forgive, easier to, to, to show love, easier to, to encourage. You know, spend less time complaining about people, more time building them up. And this is so important. And it's easy, believe me, I know how easy it is when people are griping about somebody to, to join right in because you know who they are and then all of a sudden you get that, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. And most of you will know that I sometimes will slip into that. I'll start thinking about it and go, no, we've got to stop. <laughs> Can't talk about this and then, you know, in this way. Because it's our flesh likes to put people down. Because by putting others down, we're lifting ourselves up and exalting ourselves. And we're not any better than they are in the long run. And we need to really understand that we're not better than they are. We may be better than they are in certain areas or maybe even most areas. But there's, we're not better than other people because by God's standards, we're just as bad or worse. And so here we're told, share. Share with people. Now, those of us that are teachers and pastors, we have a greater responsibility to share because that's our job. But all Christians are given the commandment to go and make disciples. And that the statement, the desires of the flesh, that most often refers to our sin nature, right? We are to live victoriously if we live in Christ and his victory. He has given us victory. Most of us don't appropriate that victory because we will rec not recognize the fact that he is, wants to crucify it. And as long as we let the, that area of our life live, then we'll, we'll struggle with it. We might be trying to discipline it, trying to keep it under control, and that doesn't work. God wants to come in and crucify it, and that's painful. Crucifixion is painful. We're so concentrated on this one area that we know we're weak in and getting victory that we take the guard off of something that we think we have no problem with, and we fall in that area. And this is, I've said it over and over, we are most likely to fall in whatever we think we're strong in and not doing. And that is almost always where we end up falling because we don't put a guard on it. And I've shared this many times. Many of these evangelists and pastors who have, who have had an adulterous affair usually have come in to their extent saying, I love my wife so much I would never have an affair. And then they do things that are stupid and put themselves in a place that temptation at the right moment, at the right time, overtakes them and they fall. And this is something we've got to be careful of. Wherever we think we're strong, be very careful. That could be a place that you can fall real easy. And this is sometimes when somebody's been an alcoholic or a drug user and they haven't done it for years and they think, okay, I've got victory over this. And then they start hanging out in the bar to talk to friends. And the next thing you know, they're drinking again. You know, and they think, well, I can just go and have my Coke and you may or may not for a while. But then there comes that day when you're, you're having a bad day and you go in, you go in there and it says, well, maybe, maybe one drink's not going to hurt me. So many people will forget what, what, was, what was bad. How, why did I get saved in the first place? So, you know, why did I turn away from all these things that, you know, that weren't satisfying me? And, and, and we as humans have a real big problem. We tend to forget the bad of things and only remember the good. You know, well, yeah, there were a couple of times when I felt okay with, with my drinking, and I'm going to say there probably were times when people felt okay with their drinking and, and felt good. They weren't thinking about how much money they lost and the hangovers the next day and the stupidity they did. 
while they were drinking. They just remember, well, I felt good for a little while. That's why it's so important to be in the spirit 24-7. Yeah, it's, it's a 24-7 a activity or it's going to cost us everything. Yeah. So, all right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you care and love for us. Lord, give us the strength. Help us to allow you to crucify our flesh and give us true victory in our lives so that we can become more and more like you in all that we do. And, and Lord, if there's anybody listening to this that doesn't know you, that they will confess their sin and ask you to be their Savior and, and start living for you and find a good church. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.